White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 517. Timing underwater. Speed underwater. That is what half-hour assignments are about. Harris, are you listening to me? Yes, sir. Then bloody well look at me. Yes, sir. Yesterday, one man completed the exercise precisely on time. Me. Today, you will all complete the exercise precisely on time. You'll arrive at your first marker in exactly four and a half minutes from now. The second marker, 30 seconds later. Three, two, one, go! Hello and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast and on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, another joint production brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters. You know who you are via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico and I'm joined as always for these James Bond related episodes of our various shows by my co-host Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. Um, It's good to be back. Yes. I think we'll have a fun time with this one. Yes, because we've done Sean Connery's non-Bond films, and so tell the folks what we're talking about today. So today we're uh, we're skipping George for the moment, and we're going to talk about uh, Roger Moore's uh, non-Bond films. So That's uh, right. Maybe a little bit about his pre-Bond career as well. All right, very good, yeah. And, and I mean, I think even folks that are not, they, that, that Roger Moore is not their favorite Bond, I don't know anybody that doesn't just like him. You know what I mean? He is just an absolutely yeah. likable, likable guy, always was. And he's good in other things. I mean, one of the reasons that I enjoy seeing him in other things occasionally is that you come to think he wasn't even playing a... He wasn't even acting as... as you know, he was basically James Bond, Roger Moore. <laughs> and so you think, did he even act in those movies or did he just like recite the lines, but that was his personality. So it's good to see him playing other characters... To see that, you know, I mean, it's kind of the same way with Daniel Craig, honestly. I mean, when you see Daniel Craig as Bond, you, if after a while, you kind of think this is just him. So this is why I love things like Knives Out. I guess we'll talk about those movies down the road a little bit. Or uh, Lo- Logan Lucky, because you see a completely different side of him. And I don't know that Roger Moore has that much range, but but what he does is very charming. Is that is that not the word, probably? Yeah, he was a very charming. He was he, he was a true gentleman, and I think in every sense of the word. Um and uh, yeah, I he's I mean you know, I've gone on record. He's not my he's not my favorite Bond. Um, I do enjoy his Bond movies, mm. some more than others. But I love Roger Moore. Uh, I I have as long as I can remember of being aware of movie stars. He was probably the first actor who I actually knew by name, um, as opposed to a character. Um, and, and there's partly a reason for that. We'll get to when we talk a bit about his pre-Bond career. But just growing up, I, I don't know, I'm just looking down at my bookcase now. I still have the Roger Moore annual, um, or sorry, the Roger Moore adventure book from like the mid 60s, which I, I had as a kid. It's still sitting here next to me. It's probably the only one of those I still have the original edition. All the, the other ones from that time I've had to go back and rebuy, but that was my original one and I've hung on to it. Um, you know, I've got all these biographies here. Um, th- yeah, there was just something about Roger that uh, really appealed. Yeah, I think he was the quintessential 
English gentleman adventurer, um, and uh, I loved I loved him in pretty much everything he'd, he's done, um, both TV and movies. Now, it was interesting to me to discover when we started talking about looking at these movies. We, we, we talked last time when we did this about Sean Connery that there was just so much, right? He, Sean Connery did, did way more movies than you realize he did until you stop and think about it. You know what I mean? In other words, if you think Sean Connery, think, yeah, he did some, he did a lot of Bond, he did, you know, six, seven, whatever Bond movies, depending on how you count it. He did some other things, but Connery did like a movie a year for years, at least for years and years. Roger Moore did not do as many movies as I would have guessed he did, or else I just didn't see them because. I mean, I know that he was Bond for basically the better part of two decades, but it, there's there wasn't a whole lot of other movies really to choose from, not compared to Connery. What what do you know about that, or why is that, or am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I think it's partly because the, the pre-Bond, most of his career was, was in TV. Um, though he ah. did actually, his, his first um, on-screen appearance was actually in a movie. He Going back as far as, would you believe, 1945 is when he first <laughs> appeared in a movie. Um, and he was um, appeared as an extra in several movies um, just after he came out of the uh, at just at the end of World War Two and just before he went into the army. Um, so yeah, he he did he did a bunch of sort of walk on parts and things. And apparently he had uh, already quite a a strong female fan following, even as just as an extra, just <laughs> as that pretty guy who turns up in the back of some of the scenes. So. Uh, um, but uh, once he got out of the army, um, he really moved into modeling and then into TV. And uh, the fun thing about the modeling, I don't know, I know some of the Bond folks will know this, but uh, he was very big on knitwear. Um, folks who, who knit and buy these knitting patterns. Well, in the 1950s, most of the male model uh, sweater and jumper and knitwear fashion um, knitting patterns had Roger Moore on the front. Um, he was a big knitwear model. Um, and in fact, he was even known as the big knit um, at the time. So that, that was his claim to fame. Um, and I actually remember my mother having a few of those around the house as well with Roger on it. So that was probably my first exposure to Roger Moore uh, that I remember. There is another one that I don't remember. Um, and we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, and then he, he sort of uh, bounced between the US uh, and the UK with a, a you know a, a TV career that sort of built and built and built until he got to the point where he was the, the world's highest paid TV actor, so um, and then into Bond. So you know, most of the, most of his movie stuff was stuff he either made in between the Bond movies, uh, and then after Bond finished, he didn't really make that much. Mm-mm. After he, he sort of did the odd pick and choose his, his um, you know, what he wanted to do, and I think that part of that is because you know, post Bond, he got more and more involved in the charity stuff, and, and UNICEF became more important to him than, than yeah. the movies. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's but, right. Uh, do we want to sort of talk a bit about his TV career? Well, we you'll you'll certainly um, have to do that. I don't know. I I've never really seen any of his of his TV work, but I was just uh, you, you, something occurred to me there when you were saying that. I was um, oh yeah that we had to point out. I think it's important to point out. We were talking about kind of comparing him to Connery. You know, people don't always realize unless they listen to our show. And we talked about it one time a while back that when Roger Moore started as Bond, he was older than Connery when Connery finished as Bond. So he was already, you know, in his, what, 40s when he started. Yeah, he was actually past up below retirement age he, um, because, according to Fleming, you meant to retire as a double at 45, and I think yeah. Moore was 45 when he, he signed. So, yeah. Um, so, really, he shouldn't have done any of the movies because, technically, he was too old for all of them. <laughs> That's right. um, but, yes, he was older than Connery. Um, so, yeah. So, all right, so so television. I've never really seen him on television, so you you, you kind of break that down for us a little bit. 
Um, well, like I said, he sort of started out in the UK as a as a model, and then moved to the US, where he got a um, he actually got a, um, a a movie contract with MGM, um, a seven year movie contract, and he made um, a couple of movies which were absolute disasters. And MGM let him go after two years of his seven year contract and basically booted him out. Um, so he was a complete failure as far as movies were concerned in the mid fifties, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, uh, and then he sort of ended up on a joint UK US production of Ivanhoe. Um, which is actually good fun. It's it's a um, thirty nine episodes black and white um, adaptation of the Walter Scott story, um, mm-hmm. Knights in Shining Armor. Apparently, Roger Moore hated, as he put it, riding around the country in a tin can. Um, but uh, it's a good fun show. It, it it's sort of aimed for the sort of British kids market. I, I can't say I remember it because it was out in fifty eight and fifty nine, but I sure saw it in reruns. Um, and I'm actually going to, um, and then after that, he sort of went freelance and did little one-shot parts in various TV shows. Uh, and I want to throw in my Roger Moore encounter story here because um, it was about the time when he was doing freelance one-shot sort of stuff in various British TV shows that I actually met Roger Moore. Um, and you didn't see me do air quotes there, but when I, I did around the word met, because um, <laughs> the uh, my the local uh, TV station close to where I live, which was Granada TV in the north of England, they actually rented a small townhouse in the road next to where me and my parents lived. Um, everybody knew it was the TV house because it had a white door. It was the only house on the street that had a white door and it was the TV house. Um, and basically visiting actors would stay there um, and they would put up visiting actors there. And Roger Moore was staying at this, uh, at the white door house, the TV house. And uh, my mother t- um, tells me, she still tells me today, even though she's sort of in her nineties and, uh, not quite there. It's one of her, her, her clear memories is of going into the butchers once a week and usually being there at the same time that Roger Moore was in there getting his weekly steak or whatever it was. And that he would pat me on the head in my pram um, <laughs> and say something nice. And uh, that was my encounter with Roger Moore, apparently. Um, he used to pat me on the head in my pram, which is pretty cool. I wish I remember it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but my mother is adamant that it actually happened. So uh, I, I, I'm going to go with that. So That's awesome. Um, Anyway, so after he met me, um, his career could only go up. So uh, <laughs> he then uh, he moved back to the states and got various bit. Uh, he was in various bit parts, and they got cast in a show called The Alaskans um, at the end of the fifth, around about fifty nine sixty. Um, the Alaskans was actually a bit of a cheat show because uh, it w- what they would do was take the scripts from Maverick, the James Garner western, mm-hmm. and change the names and re- basically reshoot the story. So they weren't even using the original scripts. They were using the Maverick scripts and wow. changing the character names. Um, and uh, But what this eventually led to is when Garner left Maverick, Roger Moore was actually cast um, as his replacement up as his English cousin, Bo Maverick. And he was took over as the lead character for 14 episodes of the Maverick uh, Western TV show, um, So, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. And then, of course, in the six, early 60s after... The, that he moved back to the UK where he was cast uh, as the saint. Um, really, that made his career. Um, I'm sure you've seen the saint. I knew that he played never, the saint. I've, I've never seen any shows or anything. You've never seen an episode of the saint. Good nope. grief. There are I, like 118 I, episodes. I, I saw the movie. With, I saw the movie with, um, with uh, what's his name? Don't, 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 don't say it. You did. No, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> That's all I know of it. With the guy who played, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, with Val Kilmer. So. Yeah, Val Kilmer. Doc, yeah, Doc Holliday. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, that's not it. No. So, <laughs> but, 
So the Saints, um, if, if you're a Bond fan, I highly recommend watching the Saints, not just because Roger Moore's in it, but because virtually it's a who's who of people who ended up in the Bond movies. Because oh. it was filmed in the UK between in, between 62 and 69. There are so many, I think, like the Shirley Eaton is in the opening one. Lois Maxwell's in there. There's a couple of episodes with David, uh, Roger Moore and David Hedison together. There's... Uh, hmm. uh, I know future M's, uh, bad guys. There's so many bit part characters are in there. Um, it's like every second or third episode, you're like, "Oh, that's so and so from a Bond movie." <laughs> well, I've just never um, seen it available anywhere. It's a British show, and oh, it's it, never. I've just never it's, seen it's it. on it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It used to be oh. Prime, but it's now with that IMDb oh, okay. TV channel yeah. where it's free with ads. Um, so okay. it's all. All six epi- uh, seasons are on are on Amazon for streaming, and I'm currently just at the end of episode uh, season two, I think, with my re rewatch. But uh, there we go. so yeah, it ran for six seasons, 118 episodes. Um, uh, after the first two seasons, it uh, got picked up by NBC over here, so it became pretty international and really made his name. And uh, he went on to basically be a producer on the show, uh, directed it, and, and uh, he's basically remained linked to the same or remained linked to the same property. Ever since, I think he retained the uh, live-action rights uh, going forward. So he's been involved to some level or other with every attempt to relaunch the franchise since. Um, not quite sure what's going to happen now since his passing, but uh, he, he's definitely been involved in pretty much every uh, variation of The Saints since then, uh, including the Val Kilmer movie where he basically provides the voiceover on the car radio at the end. He does, that's right. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Um, and also during his time as a saint in 1964, he actually appeared on a comedy series called Mainly Millicent, where he appeared in a sketch where he played the character of James Bond. <laughs> oh, so he had, so, that was before, right? Yeah, so this is 64. So this yes. is several years before he actually played the part. He did actually play. And there's a couple of episodes in this, uh, of The Saint where actually people refer to him as James Bond or mistake him for James Bond, which is mm, quite funny. Yeah. So, um, and then he's... the. Just before he took over Bond, he started one of my all-time favorite shows, um, which was The Persuaders, where he played alongside Tony Curtis. Uh, And this was when he was paid the unheard-of sum of a million dollars for a single series, which made him the highest-paid TV actor in the world at the time. Um, He was also co-producer on it. It was his show. Um, He's driving around in an Aston Martin as an international playboy, solving crime with his American partner, Tony Curtis, who drives around in a Ferrari. got one of the best opening credit sequences of any TV show. Um, while it was aimed primarily for the UK and US audience, it actually was a huge hit in continental Europe and Australia. Um, and the best version, if you can ever find it and you know German, is the German version, because when they dubbed the German version, they basically ignored the scripts and just made up a whole bunch of <laughs> funny cracks and comedy routines based on what they were seeing on the screen. It's got nothing to do with the original script. <laughs> they, they basically turned it into MST3K. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. But, uh, but I love the persuaders. If you've not seen it again, it's available on DVD and I think on streaming as well. Um, but uh, if you've never seen it, just, just Google the persuaders uh, theme opening theme. It's, it's really cool. And that was it. And then we were into, into the movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were into the Bond movies, but uh, we, we were going to talk about the non-Bond movies. So um, do you want to do this like in, you do your three? I've talked for a while, so how about you do? We can swap back and forth, I think is how we've done it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I'm going to hand it over to you, uh, Van, for you to, to kick off. Um, All right. I've got, interestingly enough, my three, just by chance, happened to come out three years in a row, and they're three of my handful of favorite pop culture years 
ever. My three come from 1978, 1979, and 1980. I think you have one from 1980 as well. So interesting, that's when he was doing a lot of work. That was like right in the middle of his Bond period that he was doing this, right in the middle. And so my first one that I'm going to talk about now is The Wild Geese. Now, this is a movie I've loved since I was little. I saw this one. It came out in 1978. It was probably pretty much on TV by the early 80s, you know, coming on. I don't. I didn't have cable TV until I went to college, so I'm not sure where I was seeing it, but I was probably seeing it in high school on like, you know, late night TV or some going over to a friend's house and it was on cable or something. I don't know how I ended up seeing it, but I remember seeing it a couple of times when I was a teenager or whatever and really, really enjoying it because it has such a great cast. This thing has a great cast. Now, I just want to say a few things about it and then we can kind of talk about them, but there's there's two movies, 1978 one and then the 1980 one I'm going to talk about too, that were both uh, directed by Andrew V. McLaughlin. And both of them have Roger Moore, and both of them are pretty darn entertaining. They're both these big, broad action movies where Roger Moore has a fairly central role. But interestingly, The Wild Geese, this one in 78, uh, it's the, check out this cast. It's got Richard Burton as the main figure. Roger Moore is kind of a secondary figure. And then Richard Harris is the other central figure. And then quite a few other, I mean, that alone, right? I mean, Richard Burton, Roger Moore, Richard Harris, and then Hardy Kruger is kind of part of the team, too. And it just kind of goes on from there. Uh, so an amazing lead cast. And the and I guess we're going to spoil things, so if you, you, you guys know, we're going to go into details on these movies. But they've been out for, forever, so it's not like we're giving anything away. Um, but The Wild Geese, the cool thing about it, so these are merc- they're all mercenaries. They go around the world doing, you know, engaging in combat for pay. And uh, their leader basically is Richard Burton. And it's been a while. I've watched this movie a million times now, but it's been a while since I saw it. But you correct me if I make a mistake on anything here. So basically, Richard Burton agrees to help an African president who's trying to escape from where he's been captured by his political enemies. And he's in bad physical health. And he's going to go in and do this. And he puts his team together. And Richard Harris is basically like the, the planner, the tactician that comes up with the clever plans. And then Roger Moore plays a character named Sean, I believe, who is like uh, a you know integral part of their little group as well. And they have a doctor that's pretty entertaining and others. Um, and so they, they fly into this African country and battle basically an entire African army from one side of the country to the other to rescue this president and fly back out again. And then the other, and and several things about it kind of stand out to me, but um, it's and it's kind of a problematic movie nowadays, I would argue, because you know the the black other than the president, the black characters in it are pretty much they might as well be like the orcs in Lord of the Rings or something. They're just kind of faceless cannon fodder uh, for these mostly white mercenaries. So there's that, you know. But it's, again, it was from the early mid '70s or mid late '70s. So, um, but. Um, there's like there's there's double crossing, betrayal. Uh, there's you know the the very very expected unexpected death of one of the main characters that we can talk about. I saw it coming a mile away, but you know it, it made sense for the story. Um, and then there's like a whole lot of killing people. They just kill a whole lot of people in this movie, and and quite a few of them get killed. So. That's my overview of the wild geese, based on either a movie called, on either a novel called The Flight of the Geese, or based on a novel called The Thin White Line, depending on who you believe. 
Um, it cost seven. It cost nine million dollars to make, and the score is by Roy Budd, who I'm not familiar with. And um, it, it, you know, it made about three and a half million dollars in the U.S. and Canada, and a few million in other countries. So not a huge, uh, not a huge financial windfall considering the budget was nearly 12 million dollars so all right there's my overview what what do you have to say about this movie alan well i actually just rewatched it like three nights ago um just it was on my it's it's free on amazon prime and it was on my list so i thought well i'll just mm-hmm. re- uh you know get reacquainted with it and uh, yeah it's pretty much as you said um for me one of the actually um spectacular things is as you said about them flying in they didn't actually fly in they they did a parachute jump, and you get oh, this yeah. this scene of the fifty guys coming out, free falling out the back of this cargo uh, plane over an African veldt, and then sort of coming together. And I don't know it was a really cool sequence. I don't know how many times they had to do it, or you know they really got fifty guys because um, this was obviously before CGI, so they you know probably mm-hmm. did it for real. Uh, it was a very very cool scene of watching all these guys uh, just free fall out of the back of this plane. Um, so uh, yeah, and uh, as, as you said, it's a little problematic. Um, you know, as you said, it, it's set in Africa, and uh, there's some uh, fairly cringeworthy dialogue between the South African character and the uh, the president, the African president, um, which uh, is not too neat. I, I know they were trying to make a point, but from today's perspective, it, it's sort of a bit cringeworthy. And as yeah. you said, most of the uh, the African troops are just cannon fodder. Um, but as you said, you know, the mercenaries, I think they set out with 50 and 13 come back. So, you know, they, they take their, their hits too, mm. um, including one of the main characters, as you mentioned. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, it, it's it's sort of fun to see Roger walking through this, you know, being the uh, being the good looking one, still with his, uh, his signature uh, cigar, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, even in the... It, army outf- outfit and stuff the rest of them look really pretty shabby and roger still looks like he's just stepped out of a you know a taylor's on uh, on bond street it, it's quite funny but uh, it's true it, it's a good it, it's a good uh, it's a good hour and a half's entertainment uh it's also got a lot of bond connections uh, we were talking yes. about it off air just before we we started recording but uh, you know the title sequence was done by morris binder um, and there's quite a few other uh, behind-the-scenes Bond folks uh, involved in the movie as well. Can't remember them all, but that was the one that stuck with me. Um, and uh, you know, they, they they tried to give it a good uh, a, a, a good theme song, which didn't really hit no. um, by Joan Armour Trading, I believe. Um, they, but they uh, they want it so bad to be a Bond opening. You know what I mean? They try yeah. so hard to give it that flavor, that mid '70s Bond flavor, with like the. The, the Maurice Bender titles that, you know, maps and pictures and moving around and everything and the music, the the belting female singer and all. And it just, I just, every time I see it, I'm just like, oh, come on, just don't, just be original. You don't have to try to copy something else <laughs> just because Roger Moore is in it, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, and Roger was what, second or third build? I mean, he wasn't top build on this one, as you no. said. It's, I mean, a rich... Richard Burton's great in it. I mean, that voice of his is, is amazing anyway. Um, but uh, And there's great uh, interplay between the, th- the three leads, uh, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and, and Roger Moore. You can tell they probably shared a, uh, a glass or two offset. Um, so, uh, yeah, they were... They were good things. It's just fun for, you know, funny for Roger. I always find it with Roger, you know, because he always said he hated guns. So, yeah, he played Bond. But for him to be actually, uh, you know, playing a mercenary, um, and quite a ruthless one too, Um as well, and how that sort of sat with him is, is, is interesting. That is true. I got a, I got a point for you. I just thought of. I just thought of this. Uh, you know, where eagles dare. 
Um, Mark Buskett and I reviewed it several years ago on this on this program with Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. And one of the trivia factoids about that movie was that that was the last time Clint Eastwood ever agreed to be second billed in a movie. And this movie came out in the prime of Roger Moore's career, and yet he's second billed to Richard Burton. Isn't it interesting that Richard Burton is the only actor that could make Clint Eastwood and Roger Moore be second billed on a movie in their primes? Yeah, probably in the 70s, yeah, he had that sort of power. Yeah, yeah so, that's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it's a good performance from him. Um, and as you said, you know, uh, when one of the characters says to Richard Burton, if anything happens to me, will you look after my son? Well, you know he's uh, not going to make the end of the uh, movie. Boom, <laughs> as soon as he said, as soon as they show the kid and put all that, you know, put all that pathos into the kid and everything, I'm just like, oh, he's so dead. He's yep. so dead. The Grim Reaper could just be standing like a French art film, just standing beside him, you know, just waiting for him. Like a vulture starts circling him as soon as he says that. I'm just like, oh, come on. So that was yeah. the part. That was the cringiest of the cringeworthy parts for me because it was just so telegraphed. But oh, well. I did going back to the mercenary thing. Uh, there's a couple of things that I found. I mean, when it gets towards the end and Roger's piloting the escape plane and they're trying to land in. Rhodesia, I think. Mm-hmm. She's um, now called something else. Um, Zimbabwe. But, uh, Zimbabwe, yeah. Um, but when he's coming in and he's trying to land and he, and he, and he basically says over, the, uh, over the, the radio, hey, this is a plane load of mercenaries uh, and we got wounded and we want to land. It's like, well, that was pretty open. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that was a reflection of the times when that, you know, it was it, mercenary groups acting in Africa was, was, you know, way more open. And what was interesting, I noticed in the credits and the opening sequence, he said the military advisor was Michael Hall, um, who was a well-known um, mercenary and was actually ner- was famous in the UK for being a mercenary. Wow. Um, that, and, uh, but so then he got discredited later on um, because of uh, things that he did get involved in, which were not were even worse than being a mercenary, if you like. Um, he got involved in some genocide stuff and things like that. So uh, he, he got discredited. But at that time, he was very well known um, in the UK, not just for being a military guy, but for actually being, if you like, um, the Richard Burton character, um, pretty much. So, mm-hmm. but, uh, so yeah, it was. I, I found it was an interesting, if you like, political and geopolitical snapshot of, of that time, too. Yeah, of, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. of the uh, sort of the the, the machinations of uh, African politics and people in the West, and you know, big companies get involved in involved in who should be uh, ruling a country. It's probably not a lot different now. Um, no, probably but, not. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I thought I, I thought uh, my initial thing was, oh, this is going to just be a good fun, uh, you know, action movie to watch. But I came away from it thinking about a lot more things than just uh, just guys with guns. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think it's kind of underrated. I, again, I think when you approach, you have to approach it understanding what you're going to get, right? That it is from you know 1978, and it's got African, you know, basically the, they just slaughter, just slaughter the the poor African soldiers that are just doing their job. Basically, they don't give us any reason to think that those soldiers were evil like Nazis or anything. They were just dudes, you know, doing their job, defending their country, presumably. And they just get wiped out with cyanide and arrows and bullets and everything. So that was kind of disturbing. But other than that, I mean, it kind of dehumanizes them to a certain degree, which I found disappointing. But again, in 1978. So if you can get past that, and I'm not saying that you should, but if you can, I think it's, it's, it's actually, you know, just in terms of like a mercenaries uh, in Africa type movie, it's about as good as of that kind of a thing as you're probably going to get. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. All right. Want to go on to the second one? To yours? All right. 
Yeah, sure. So I'm actually going to go back in time a little bit. I'm going to go into 1968. Um, we talked about The Saint earlier. Um, what I'm going to do is The Fiction Makers, which is actually one of two movies, Saint movies, that were made by knitting together uh, various uh, episodes of The Saint TV show. So if you've actually never seen The Saint TV show and sitting down to watch 118 episodes is a bit much for you, um, and, but you want to get a taste of what uh, Roger Moore as a Saint was like, I highly recommend The Fiction Makers. It is on Amazon Prime. Um, Originally, it was a two-part episode of the TV series that was edited together. Um, and I'd say the following year, they did the same thing with a movie called Vendetta for the Saint. But The Fiction Makers is, is my favorite of those two. Um, it's a good intro to the style and tone of Roger's iconic take on Simon Templer. It's fun. Got a slightly ludicrous plot. It sort of veers towards Austin Powers-ish territory. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so the, the basic plot is um, the Saint's hired by a friend in the book publishing trade to protect one of his stars, uh, because we all know our publishers do go around um, hiring uh, international Robin Hood mercenaries to look after us all. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically, he's hired to look after this reclusive uh, writer called Amos Klein, who writes a series of spy novels. Uh, and uh, Roger finds, oh, sorry, Simon Templer finds out that uh, Amos Klein is, in fact, a woman. <gasps> Good grief, a woman <laughs> um, who adopted a. Uh, who adopted a male nom de plume to increase the sale of her novels. Isn't that a telling statement? Um, and while he's in a, a, a talking to her in her uh, cottage, they get kidnapped by a group of people who claim to be members of S.W.O.R.D., which is the evil organization from her novels. Um, and basically this guy, Warlock, who is the bad guy from her novels, but this guy has taken over the, the idea of Warlock and this sword and set up an evil organization based on her novels or based on the Amos Klein novels and wants Amos Klein to write their next heist for them and plan their next heist for them. Um, but of course, they mistake Simon as being the novelist because he's a man and she's the secretary. And basically, they end up holed up in this house in the, in, and he has to sort of pretend he's writing the novel while trying to figure out how they can escape and foil the plan. Um, and it's, you know, he ends up sort of going, the, trying to alert the authorities and getting caught and trying to escape and getting caught. Yeah. It's all a bit of a, a sort of Sunday afternoon fast, but it's, it, it's a good fun couple of hours and it, it really gives you a sort of a nice um, sense of, of Simon Templar as the saint. And it, he's just, you know, charming debonair um, all the way through it and uh, just sort of does it slightly old tongue in cheek. Um, just pure Roger stuff. I gotta um, say that sounds just like Roger in, in most everything. Yeah. 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 So it, it's a real good intro to this, to the saint. Um, if you've, if you've never seen Roger as, as Simon Templer. So highly recommend it. Um, I, I think it, when the, we, we first got VHS players back in the midst of time, I think it was one of the first VHS um, things that I bought was actually the, uh, the VHS coffee copy of the fiction makers. So uh, it was, it, it tends to be more widely available than the actual TV show. So it's pretty easy to find. Um, that reminds me, by the way, of one thing I wanted to mention. The wild geese was that he's still, you know, we mentioned he's, you mentioned he's got the cigar and everything in that, and it's the same thing. It's like he's still playing Roger Moore. He he does have a little bit of yeah. range, and he can, but but he's 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 kind of this mischievous tag along guy more than the main guy in that. So yeah, know. I mean, the thing with it, we sort of touched on it with the wild geese is he, he, he his intro, his character's introduction is really brutal. And he, he's really um, where he discovers that he basically he thought he was had been hired to um, carry laundered money, but finds out it's a drug. And then he, he turns on the drug pusher and um, executes the drug pusher and, yeah. um, in a pretty 
violent way. And you're like, whoa, that's not Roger. Yeah, um, that's and then he joins the mercenaries and, hey, it's Roger. Um, yeah. <laughs> so for the rest of the movie um, with his cigar clamped in his mouth. So, yeah. It's, uh, that's exactly. Yeah. All right. So on to the second one for me. Yep. All right. So, yeah, this one is interesting. This is the one. This is it's got an interesting background for me. Not it's very quickly. So this one is called Escape to Athena. Another really incredible cast. I, Roger ha, Roger surrounded himself with really tremendous uh, supporting cast in these movies that he did in this in this period. Um, this is a movie I rem, I clearly remember seeing the the TV commercials for it when it was coming out in '79. And I remember looking at my grandmother and saying, oh, I kind of want to see that. It's Roger Moore, you know, and there's stuff exploding and all and World War II and all. And I thought, I want to see that. And she's like, I don't think you should see that. (laughs) And I never saw it. So I didn't actually watch this movie until about three or four days ago. So while you were watching The Wild Geese, I was watching Escape to Athena because it is on Amazon Prime. And I'd never seen it and I'd always wanted to. And I knew I had forgotten that Roger Moore was in it. I had to, I kind of actually Googled Roger Moore's other films just to find some I could talk about that I because mostly the Bond movies are what I've ever seen him in, other than you know one that you're going to talk about and, and the two two of the three I'm talking about. And so I saw Escape to Athena and I went, oh, that's that movie I wanted to see, you know, th- forty years ago <laughs> and never did. I'm going to watch it. So here I didn't even know who else was in it. Check out this cast, Alan. This is a mind-blowing cast. And a div- talk about not diverse like ethnically or anything, but just diverse in terms of just wildly different types of actors, okay? So you've got Roger Moore, and he plays a a um a Nazi commander. <laughs> that I kept thinking, okay, when's he going to turn out to be in disguise, you know? Because everything else these guys ever do, they disguise themselves as Nazis. I think everything Richard Burton ever did in World War II, he's disguised as a Nazi at some point. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, Richard, yeah, Richard Burton show up at his tailor, and the tailor's like, "You need another Nazi commander's suit, sir? No, no, I need something else this week." So, so. Roger Moore is the Nazi base commander in this. Uh, I think he's supposed to be Austrian instead of German. Whatever. Well, so is Hitler. So, um, but he's so he's kind of the bad guy, but he changes sides halfway through, which is bizarre. And then uh, you have Telly Savalas in in kind of the um, the action hero role. Okay, he's he's more like the action star, going to blow stuff up and kill bad guys as like a Greek partisan soldier. And then David Niven, David Niven as the professor who's there helping them out. I have to explain the the setup of the movie, but let me just go through the cast. And the reason David Niven was in it is because his son produced the movie, and and so he's like, well, I'll. It sounds like a bit of fun hanging out with Roger Moore, you know, and Telly Savalas for for a couple of months. Uh, then you've got Stephanie Powers as the as one of the two leading ladies. And it's really nice to see uh, Stephanie Powers in a movie in 1979 looking very, very gorgeous. This is a couple of years before Heart to Heart, where I mostly saw her. And by the way, her husband shows up in a, in a cameo that is pretty hilarious. She was uh, dating or dating or married to, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Holden? William Holden. William Hol- yeah. Holden. Yeah. yeah, William Holden from The Great Escape, I believe. <laughs> so at one point they encounter him standing there in the prison camp, and he's like, ah, just, you know, it's a living. Um, 
Then you've got Claudia Cardinal. If she was never a Bond girl, she should have been because she pops up and didn't. Wasn't she in one of the early Bonds? I don't know. I I can't. She seems like she should have been. Okay. And then uh, Richard Roundtree. I believe that is Shaft himself kicking butt. Um, And although he doesn't make the movie poster, which is a shame. And then get this. We're not done yet. Sonny Bono. (laughs) And we're not done yet. The guy that tries to steal the movie by hamming it up, Elliot Gould. So Roger Moore, Telly Savalas, David Niven, Stephanie Powers, Claudia Cardinal, Richard Roundtree, Sonny Bono, and Elliot Gould. That, my friend, is a cast in a 1979 movie. And yet this movie is terrible. I it how could it how could it go so wrong? How? And I'll tell you how it went so wrong. Let me quickly give you the setup. Okay. So so everybody except Roger Moore that I just mentioned basically is are prisoners in this Nazi prison camp in an on an island in Greece and they're looking they're digging up kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark the Nazis are digging up looking for treasures. Roger Moore as the prison camp commander gets all the valuable ones and mails them to his sister in Switzerland so he can be rich after the war. All right. Telly Savalas is there trying to put together kind of a commando attack to blow up a Nazi missile base on the island. And so in order to convince some of the other POWs to help him blow up the Nazi missile base, he tells them that there's secret treasure in the missile base, and if they help him, they can have the treasure. All right. And then Elliot Gould and Stephanie Powers are a USO entertainment duo. Like he's the comedian and she's the the dancer, right? And they get like their plane gets shot down and they end up in this camp as well. So they so Telly Savalas put together this intricate plan where Elliot Gould and Stephanie Powers will put on a USO show for the Nazis. And while they're doing their USO show, Telly Savalas and David Niven and Richard Roundtree and Sonny Bono, I can't believe I'm saying that, they take over the base and capture all the Nazis while they're distracted watching Stephanie Powers' legs. Okay. Um, (laughs) It just gets more and more bizarre. So then Roger Moore changes sides and helps the, the good guys. And by the way, this was directed by and written by George P. Cosmatos, who also did The Eagle Is Landed, where he made Michael Caine a Nazi. So he just had a thing for making friendly, cool, rootable British actors into Nazis for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. All right, so let me round this out. Let me finish this out. So um, they, there's, there's action, there's explosions, there's combats, there's goofy humor, way too much of that. And then ultimately, of course... There's a showdown inside the missile base with the Nazis and the treasure and Sonny Bono and, and Telly Savalas and all that. Okay, I won't, I won't tell you the very ending. Now, here's the thing. It didn't do very well. It didn't make much money, I don't believe. It made, you, surprised, you surprised me. <laughs> yeah, it made $850,000 in the U.S. <laughs> Woo! But, um, and it's, long, it's over two hours long, too, so you got a lot of this to sit through. But um, the reason that it didn't do well, it was speculated by the people in charge of it that they, they were wanting it to be kind of like a Bond-style action movie that had a little bit of comedy in it. And instead, it turns out to be basically a comedy that has a little bit of action in it, the way it was filmed. And they kind of blame Cosmatos for that. 
they said that the the producers said that the last 40 minutes were great. If only the emphasis earlier on had been on action, it would have been a hit, but it wasn't. But um, they all had fun with it. It was basically like, kind of like Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven from the 60s, where all the actors had fun, but the movie was kind of a dud. So what can we say about this movie, Alan? Have you seen it? Yeah, I actually uh, sat and watched it probably about a month ago. Oh, all right, I rephrase that. I sat down and started to watch it about a month ago. Um, I, I haven't finished it yet. Yeah, I think I, I think I gave up. Yeah, probably I had to finish it. the way in. I had to finish it, but it was a chore. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think any any movie that basically puts uh, Roger Moore in a Nazi uniform is 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 missing the point right off. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if you want to put him in a Nazi uniform, I don't know, make him a British spy who pretends to be a Nazi and sell it out front, but trying to make believe that he's a, a corrupt. Uh, you know, Nazi who's spiriting goods away to you know for his own purposes. Probably not helped by the fact I've not long watched the Monuments Men, so yeah. sort of coloured my view yeah, of that. Fair, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I think that's set it off. But you're right. I, you know, I, the way I viewed this movie, this is a movie I've always known about. Like um, like you said, mm. um, you know, when the posters came out and stuff, and I remember at school and everybody was, oh, that's cool and stuff. And I, I think I saw it in the movie theater, but I got no real clear memory of it. Don't remember mm. ever getting it on video, uh, you know, on VHS or anything like that. So I, I think probably a couple of months ago was probably the first time I'd seen it since it came out in, in the movie theater. Um, and obviously didn't leave that big an impression on me. Um, so, uh, but so, you know, I, I think basically this was an excuse for, you know, I don't know, a dozen movie movie uh, people to enjoy a, a a couple of months holiday in Greece at somebody yeah. else's expense. Yes. And let's make, let's make a movie while we're here. Um, yeah, it just doesn't work. None of the characters work. None of the yeah. characterizations work. None of the interactions work. Yeah. And the plot's ludicrous as far as I could follow it anyway. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, there's a lot better World War II movies out there than this one. Well, the cast um, is so good. It's just astonishing how bad it is considering how the what a great cast. And, I mean, yeah. they're all, and they're all yeah. trying pretty hard. I mean, Stephanie Powers and Lord Elliot Gould choose the scenery. It's like he's... Oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Trying, so he, he, Elliot, he's like... Elliot Gould in this movie, it's like the whole thing is a truck stalled out, and he's just pushing it as hard as he can, trying to get it going. But but he's not he's not likable in it though, and so it's you're getting even more of something that's not likable. Really, the the character in it that really should be the most likable probably is Telly Savalas as the action hero, and he's barely in it. Right, and he he's such a shallow character anyway. And go back to Elliot Gould. It's like every time he's on, from what I remember, it's every time he's on screen. It's like he's waving his arms, going, "Look at me! Look at me!" Look yes, at me. yes, hundred um, percent. So, yeah, um, which Steve McQueen used to do, but a lot more subtly. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's 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 sorry, a dog just ran past my front window. <laughs> he doesn't like sure it. It's not my dog. <laughs> oh no. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's snowing outside, which is oh, means I don't want to go out chasing a dog if it's not mine. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a funny it's a funny movie. It could it could have been so good. It, it yeah. it's got a a pretty good premise. Um, you know, the archaeology, the missile base, the undercover stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it, it could it could have been another Guns of Navarone type movie or forced in from Navarone. Yeah, yeah. Though I I think the whole thing. It, I think part of the problem for me also was, you know, when they bring in Stephanie Powers and they put her in the same prison camp as the guys, albeit she has a, you know, her own special 
um, apartment within the, and, and it is an apartment within a prison camp and, you know, gets wined and dined by the commandant. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't think so. Um, so, well, I mean, yeah, look, it, if, if I were the commandant and Stephanie Powers showed up in 1979, I'd be whining and dining her too, man. Well, true, true. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, you know, I actually think it probably would have worked better instead of it being a World War II thing. They could have done something similar with it being, being some sort of contemporary, take the same plot, contemporary spy thing where they're using an archaeological dig to be the cover for an attack on, yeah. you know, some, some bad guy organization missile oh. base or something. Um, oh, there might have know. been a decent Bond movie plot in there with yeah. the Inspector or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, by I the way, that would have. That would have worked better than making it a World War II movie, I think. Yeah. I, it, that's just easy. You know, it's just a lazy thing to do. When you make it World War II, everything is done for you. You don't have to think it out any further. There's the Nazis, and then there's the other guys. I did, though, I wanted to mention this, and I almost forgot. I thought it was interesting that you have James Bond, right, and you have, yeah. tel- and you have Telly Savalas, and yet in this movie, Telly Savalas is the good guy, and James Bond is basically, for at least for the first half of the movie, the bad guy. Actually, you have two James Bonds. You have David. Yeah, Bond, you do. Yeah. But I mean, but so. the main one though is is, is the bad yeah, guy. Yeah. I, just, I thought it was interesting that Roger Moore is kind of like the villain for the first half of the movie, and Telly Savalas is. It's kind of a nice flip on 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 her, on her Majesties. Yeah, yeah. And it also, it also surprises me they never fit Elliot Gould into a Bond movie, and thank God they didn't. But I'm surprised they didn't try. Oh God, no! That would not have worked. <laughs> So, unless he do, he was he was sort of like a J.W. Pepper comic relief that's, type thing. That's what I mean. Yes, I'm surprised yeah, yeah. he never showed up as a comedy relief guy like J.W. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, I just looked up Christa Christia. Uh, sorry, mask not working. Cardinale. It was not. It's never been in a Bond movie, but you're oh, right. Okay. She should have been. She should have been. Yeah. She seems like she would have been. Yeah, she was great. So, yeah, yeah. such a great cast. So, oh well. All right, so I'm going to go back to my second pick, and this is a lot smaller cast. It's actually a really small, tight movie, very few people in it. Um, And we talked earlier about, uh, in basically all these movies, Roger doesn't act. Uh, Well, I'm going to talk about the one time he actually does act. Um, And even Roger Moore himself said, uh, the movie, I'm going to quote his line and then talk about the movie. So what he actually said about this this movie was, it was a film I actually got to act in, rather than just being all white teeth, and flippant and heroic. So. <laughs> yep. Um, so the movie's called The Man Who Haunted Himself. I actually think it's Roger Moore's best acting performance, and obviously Roger does too. I think it's one of his best movies. Um, it's not a big action movie. Um, it's a very small, tight, psychological, British psychological thriller done in 1970. It was the last thing he did before he became Bond, um, and you couldn't get much um, different from it. It's basically a spin on the Jackal and Hyde story. Um so it stars Roger as a guy called Harold Pelham, who is the director of a uh, marine technology company in uh, in London. He's a very uptight, conservative, OCD creature of habit. Um, and the movie starts off with him basically seeming to undergo a certain pers- a personality change as he's driving home one night. And he drives incredibly fast and sort of imagines himself at the, instead of driving his state old Rover to be at the wheel of an Italian sports car. And he ends up hurtling down the motorway at sort of a hundred miles an hour, getting into a huge car accident. It's taken to the hospital and dies on the table. And when they bring him round for a brief moment, there's two heartbeats on the monitor. And then the surgeon just thumps the monitor and it goes back to one heartbeat and they're like, Oh, okay, it's fine. And then it sort of switches to several weeks later. Um, 
and he's going back to to work and um as things go on you start you, roger as this guy pelham starts to notice that people are acting strangely around him people are sort of saying oh well, you cut me dead in the street the other day or you know oh that was a great game of snooker we had at the club on thursday and he's like i was on holiday in spain on thursday what's going on <laughs> And then things at, things at work start, you know, he goes into a meeting and they were like, oh, in the last meeting you said this and now you're doing this. And then there's industrial espionage starts happening at his company. And by the way, he, he utters a great line. He actually says, this is not like James Bond and an imaginative secret service, but industrial espionage does happen. Um, <laughs> which, again, considering his next movie would be Bond, it was quite funny. But, um, but it, it's a really tight psychological thriller and it basically follows this Pelham character as, as his life starts to unravel around him. Um, and it's really very intense and you actually don't see the doppelganger until right towards the end of the movie. Uh, I don't want to give it away as to which way it turns out, uh, but he ends up with these two competing lives of the stayed guy. Um, and then he finds out, you know, his wife thinks he's having an affair and the woman he thinks he's, she thinks he's having an affair with basically says he is, but he has no recollection of even knowing this woman, but she says they're sleeping together and, um, you know, things are going on. Like I said, there's this industrial espionage going on and people are like, why is he asking me this question? He's already asked me. And you start to realize that the doppelganger is messing with his his life and his mind. And Roger's re Roger really plays it incredibly well. It's very tight. And there is one or two little visual clues in the movie so you know which guy is which, but you have to watch it really carefully to click which version of Pelham you're seeing at any particular point in the story. And it's not totally clear. Um Hmm. Uh, but the only thing I will say is don't ever watch the trailer because the trailer gives the trailer actually says don't give away the end of this movie to your friends and what they're actually showing in the in the trailer is the end of the movie. Oh man! Um, <laughs> but if you don't know the context, you, you're not going to pick up on that. But once you watch the movie, you're like, hang on a minute. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. It, it. It's it's not on streaming. Um, it's out on DVD and Blu-ray. I, I basically picked up a DVD on eBay for like 10 bucks, but it, it's through, you can get it on Amazon as a DVD or Blu-ray. Um, highly recommend it. As I said, I think it, it's Roger Moore's strongest performance. Um, he really did throw himself into it um, and plays it really well, particularly towards the end when uh, his, his life is like unraveling around him as all this weird stuff shit is going down. Um, and he doesn't know, you know, is he going mad or isn't he? Is this stuff happening? Is he imagining it? Is it real? Um, you know, it's it's very, very cool. Um, not like his usual character at all. Um, so highly, highly recommend it. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad he got to do something like that, actually. You know, it's because, yeah, it seemed like he kind of got typecast and stuck in the same sort of sort of role. So and you can totally like I said, you can totally see. We'll talk about this, you know, in a few weeks when we, when we eventually get to uh to Daniel Craig, I don't love Daniel Craig as Bond, but I I love other stuff he's done, and I'm glad he's getting to you know kind of bust out of that box a little bit. I could see where Roger would be happy to do that too. So that's cool. Yeah. So, so that was my second one. Yeah. So my last one, and I don't even know what to call it because I keep finding more names for it. Now I I'm up to four names. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> So when I first saw this movie back in the early 80s on, again, late night TV or cable or whatever, it was called Folks, F-F-O-L-K-E-S, which is the name of Roger Moore's character. Then I found out a few years ago when they put it back out on video again, they called it North Sea Hijack, which I guess it was called in the UK, and they sometimes use that name outside of the UK. Then I found out when it came on American television, sometimes they call it Assault Force. But it was based on a novel 
that was called Esther, Ruth, and Jennifer. And once you see the movie, you'll totally get why it's called Esther. There are no characters in the movie called Esther, Ruth, and Jennifer, but you'll totally get why it's called that. And I may tell you in a minute, and maybe I won't. All right, so this is another kind of action movie from the same director as The Wild Geese, Andrew V. McLaughlin. And again, we have a pretty darn cool cast. You have Roger Moore as the main character as Folks, who is like a, he's like a, um, the leader of a mostly like underwater team that counterterrorism, you know, Delta Force type British team. He's a very demanding, you know, trainer. He trains people how to do his, you know, to do these things underwater and all that. He lives, I can't, again, it's been a while since I saw it. I Most of it's fresh in my mind, but I want to say he like lives in a lighthouse or in a mansion with a lighthouse on the, on the, on the seashore, has a bunch of cats and likes to cross stitch or, or crochet, I guess, something like that. So that's one of the things I actually really do like about this movie is they could have just made him Roger Moore again straight up, but they make his character very quirky, very, very quirky. He doesn't like women. It's not that he doesn't, well, he does, He just doesn't think very much of women as, like, you know, equals, basically. He's just a very chauvin, chauvinistic, misogynistic, you know, he just has a very low opinion of women in general. Um, and he <laughs> he's brought in because uh, Anthony Perkins is a hijacker who takes control of a North Sea British oil rig and the, the, the three oil rigs that are up there run by this company are Esther, Ruth, and Jennifer. That's why they're called that. I don't remember which one he takes over. It doesn't really matter. But, um, the, but the bad guy is Anthony Perkins. I love the fact that it, it's in the material I read about this movie, it says that one of the reasons that they did this movie is that it was to try to escape typecasting. I'm like, so the, Anthony Perkins and Roger Moore wanted to escape typecasting by appearing in a movie where Roger Moore is an action hero and Anthony Perkins is a villain. Well, I think they needed to talk to their agent a little bit more because they did play different types of characters. I mean, you know, if you imagine this being Die Hard, then Anthony Perkins is kind of like um, the, uh, uh, what's his name, the, the German in Die Hard. You know, he's kind of that smooth-talking uh, head of the bunch of bad guys taking over something. I can't. Hans Gruber. Hans Gruber, yeah, yeah, Hans Gruber, yeah. He's kind of in that mold. That's what Anthony Perkins here. You also have James Mason. David Hedison shows up, so it's really escaping your past there, Roger. Uh, Leah Brody, who I'm not super familiar with, but she's in the in the high in the high in the credits, and Michael Parks. Uh, let's see. So in 1980, basically, this one I think is pretty successful too. Because, it's a, again, it's a straight-up action movie where Roger and his team are trying to take down these hijackers on an oil rig, and there's helicopters and explosions and everything. There's underwater scenes, you know, there's spear guns, blow guns, whatever. Um, but I, I think that the thing that really stands out for me about this movie is that Roger Moore plays such a wildly different character from who he plays in everything else during this exact same time, right? Because this movie comes out a year after Moonraker, a year after Escape to Athena. I should have mentioned Escape to Athena came out the same year as Moonraker. And a, and a year before For Your Eyes Only. And, a, and, if the, and it comes out the same year as Cannonball Run. 
So he had a, he was doing a lot of work at this time, and yet this is by far, I think, the most different character of all of them. I mean, even when he's the Nazi commander and escaped to Athena, he's still, if Roger Moore was a Nazi commander, you know, <laughs> he's like the one Nazi commander you'd hang out and have a smoke a cigar with and have a drink with. Whereas in this movie, he is really a very eccentric, weird character for Roger Moore. So, like I said, they you know they have just your standard action fare the rest of the way and you know that kind of thing. But uh, but it's it's worth watching just to see Roger Moore play a different type of leading man. So, what did you think of this movie, Alan? Um, to be honest, I have not seen it since it was in the theaters. I think. Okay. Uh, um, the the thing that's always confused me about this movie. Is why on earth the American title was such a weird English spelling? I would have thought the American title would have been North Sea Hijack because that's what the movie's about, and that would have been easy to understand. Um, but folks with the double F spelling, uh, why the hell they made that the American title? I'm sure. I'm sure that did not help it at the box office one bit. No, um, because nobody would have known what that was about. Yeah, no, I remember as a kid seeing that title and thinking, I don't know what this is, and I don't really have any desire to see some weird British. Uh, you know, romantic period piece or something. All for all, yeah, I yeah, it sounds like a yeah a period drama or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah I, I remember enjoying it in the movies uh, in the theater. Um, I got some vague memories of it. I certainly remember the Roger Moore with the cats and the crocheting um, mm-hmm. thing. I suppose that make, went back to his knitting pattern days. I don't know. That stuck in my mind for some reason. Exactly. Um, I was wondering the same <laughs> thing when you said that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, to be honest, I don't really make. Uh, remember much else about it. it do you know whether it's it's available on streaming or is it something i i have it on my plex server but i don't remember how i got it on there but um, i don't know where it is right now but it's surely got to okay. be it, it pops up on cable all the time so it's on some channel or other all the time okay i'll i'll have to look it up and uh, refresh my memory but it did make about three million dollars in the u.s in 1980 which i guess was okay back then not great um, I guess it was mildly successful, but they never made another one. So, it, it, I mean, it could have been a, um, you know, it, it, it could have been a franchise if it had been a big hit, you know, because it would have given him a different character to do. But uh, I guess it, it, it wasn't. But I thought Anthony Perkins was very good in this, too, as, um, as the villain, because this was, again, this was Hans Gruber way before Hans Gruber. He, he really plays it in a very despicable, I mean, he, he, he does a great job of giving you a villain that is very unlikable and you really want to see him, you know, taken down. Kind of a cruel, you know, he, he's almost, he almost reminds me of Martin Landau in North by Northwest. This cold, calculating, cruel, you know, jerk that you just right. kind of want to see yeah. taken down. So good job by Perkins doing that. Cool. All right. I will def- definitely look that one up. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to round us out on a movie you've actually already mentioned. Though I have it down as a 1981, not 1980. But oh, okay. I'm sure. Ah, I'm sure. I'm, it's close enough. Close enough for government work. Yep. Um, which is uh, a cannibal run. Um, so you wanted to talk about casts. Um, should we go to <laughs> oh, cannibal boy. run? Isn't, cannibal run's another one where actually Roger Moore gets second billing. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if Burr he should have even gotten second billing in this. He's basically a cameo, but. Yeah, yeah, he's an extended cameo, basically. But so we got Burt Reynolds, Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, Dom Dom Louise, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Adrian Barbo, <laughs> Terry Bradshaw, Jackie Chan, Jamie Farr, Peter Fonda, Bianca Jagger, and he goes on and on. And That's on crazy. And on and on. Um, so I, I can't believe anybody listening to this has not actually watched Cannonball Run. But if you're not not familiar <laughs> with with the movie, basically the Cannonball Run is a race that takes place um, and still 
does from coast to coast in the US. Um, originally, it was set up to um, protest the then uh, nationwide 55 mile an hour speed limit. Uh, and it was to see how far you could get from one coast of the US to the other, uh, starting in the east and heading and ending in, in uh, Long Beach in California. Um, and basically, it's a madcap, it's wacky races. It's a madcap car race across the US with all these characters and all these strange vehicles. Um, and basically, Roger plays a pastiche of himself as Seymour Goldfarb Jr., the heir to the Goldfarb Girdle's fortune, um, who perpetually identifies himself as the actor Roger Moore. So it's Roger Moore playing somebody who believes he's Roger Moore, which is awesome. And, um, and, and Roger Moore being James Bond. And but he behaves as if he's James Bond. Yeah. So he's conflated Roger Moore with the actor Roger Moore with the yes. character James Bond. Yes. Um, and he signs up as the, you know he turns up in an Aston Martin DB5, not just an Aston Martin DB5, but it is actually the Goldfinger Aston Martin <laughs> DB5. It's the last on-screen uh, appearance of that car before it disappeared. Um, so it, it is the original Goldfinger Aston Martin DB5, or at least wow. in several of the scenes they they used. Uh, several DB5s, and there's a whole story about the DB5s and Cannonball Run I won't go into here. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he, he participates in the thing as as uh, as this character who believes he is Roger Moore, who believes he's, he's uh, James Bond. And we get him doing, you know, every, every time there's a scene shift and he comes back in, there's a different girl in the car. Um, he spends a fair amount of the car, uh, Thing, talking through his his resume, pretty much like I did at the beginning of the show, talking about the fact that he was, you know, um, you know, in in this show where he played a knight, and in, in the show where he, you know, he was in a western and all this sort of stuff. So he basically gives a resume of his career um, throughout the movie, or Roger Moore's career throughout the movie, um, and then plays with, you know, he gets to play with the ejector seat at the end, um, which doesn't quite work, and we'll get back to that. Um, he gets to play with the revolving number plates, the uh, the smoke screens in the DB5. Um, but one of the things I absolutely love is towards the end where they end up in a big fight with some um, bikers and the bikers are rushing towards him and he has to, he stops them and says, I, I have to warn you, my name's Roger Moore and takes a fighting stance. And then the first time he gets hit, it turns out he's got a glass jaw and he falls <laughs> to the floor. And yeah, um, so he sort of builds himself up as this big action hero all the way through. And then when it comes to an actual fight, he's completely useless. That's right. Um, but uh, but it is just Roger playing a pastiche of himself and having an absolute ball of doing it alongside his friends like Burt Reynolds and stuff. So um, if you have not watched Cannonball Run, uh, just put your brain on rest um, <laughs> and just enjoy a couple of hours of sheer delight. And this is actually the probably the movie that is credited with introducing the blooper reel uh, post credits and credit sequences uh, because yeah. I think this, this was the first movie to do that and. The movie's worth watching as much just for the blooper reels at the end because yeah. they're, they're absolutely crap, crap me up. Um, so, yeah, uh, th- there's something to watch and somebody to watch in this movie um, all the way through and somebody to go, oh, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. And if you're a car geek, there are so many motor racing references throughout it as well, which for Van and I makes it even better. So. <laughs> this is a movie that we need to do a, a, a thorough review of for Open Wheel at some point. I guess we can throw it on the Oh, pilot. we do, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah we do, yeah. It's yeah. it's a movie that I love. I saw it in the theater. I read the novelization, believe it or not, back when they used to novelize everything that came out. I read the novelization of it, which is actually pretty good, and gave a little motivation and backstory to the villain in it, who barely even is in the movie. And um, the thing of it is, 
This was the period where Dom DeLuise made it his mission in life to ruin everything Burt Reynolds was trying to do, and Burt let him. And I don't, I just thank the good Lord above that he's not in Smoking the Bandit because my gosh, because he's in the rest of them. It's like Bert said, you know what my movies need? More Dom DeLuise. I'm just like, no, 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 no. And God, if he doesn't try to. And it just, he just, he takes the movie over. And so it's as wonderful as this thing is, it could have been so much better. You know, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's got so many great, funny, hilarious, awesome things about it. And if you look at it as one of those early 80s comedies alongside, you know, Caddyshack and all that, it, it kind of fits in there pretty well with them. But when you look at it as like anything other than that, it just, you're just like, oh, it could have been such a cool race movie. It could have been, it, there's so much it could have been with that cast. And they, I just felt like they they took the easy way way too many times in this movie. But but I still love it. Yeah, I- yeah, I, I I love it, and uh, like you said, it's not a perfect movie. I think I think it's just a good slapstick, um, high concept comedy, uh, and that's the best way to to, to view it. So, uh, but uh, but I think one of the it is an extended cameo, but I think Roger really is one of the absolute standouts of it. And yeah, <laughs> to see to see a movie star of his standing at that time to play a role like that, where he is just taking making fun of himself and his, his status as a movie star uh, and his status, his status as an action hero. And we all know he didn't do his own stunts and stuff like that. It's, it's uh, really funny. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is worth seeing. And it's, it was in my top 50 movies of all time that, that I enjoy watching when I did my countdown a while back on Facebook. I, it's like number 48 or something, but it's, uh, but it is just because of, again, like I said, I love the book. I love what Roger Moore does in it. Um, they all just have great chemistry together. It is a very entertaining thing, whatever it is. <laughs> and whatever it might have yeah. been, it is a great thing. Um, it is a great thing, yeah. Yeah, whatever it is. So, And apparently the plot is used in the 2011 video game Need for Speed to Run. I had no idea. Huh, now I want to play that video is game. It? Yeah, how about that? And it's a Hal Needham movie, which kind of sums it up. That's all you really need to know. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, those are the six movies we plan to talk about. Did you have something else you wanted to throw in? Or did we kind of? Yeah, get I have a couple of others that might. Yeah, I have okay. a few others that might be worth uh, looking into. I wasn't going to go into detail, but um, if you like the, the things like uh, Wild Geese and and uh, that ilk, um, I recommend maybe Gold, uh, which is a, a 1974 one, which is based on a Wilbur Smith movie with uh, more as the general manager of a South African gold mine, um, and with uh, Susanna York, I think is the um, female lead in that. That's pretty good. Um, and then there's uh, Shout at the Devil, which is another, uh, another war adventure film uh, set in German East Africa. There's a lot of African um, mm. stuff here. Again, yeah. another Wilbur Smith novel. Um, and The Sea Wolves um, with him, with Gregory Peck and David Niven again, um, which uh, is based on a real incident that took place in World War II and is a bit more true to life than Escape from Athena. Um, so... <laughs> If you if you want some high action, um, I'd recommend those. If you want something a little different, um, if you're like me, you're, who's also a Sherlock Holmes fan, um, Roger Moore played Sherlock Holmes um, with Patrick McNee McNee as Doctor Watson um, in a 1976 TV movie, Sherlock Holmes in New York, uh, oh. which also has John John Huston as Moriarty and Charlotte Rampling as Irene Adler. Um, it's it's a pretty bad Sherlock Holmes movie, but it's fun just to see. A, <laughs> Seeing the way that Roger Moore and Patrick Manee play off each other in A View to a Kill, if you like the way that yes. those two bicker and play and are clearly make, play off each other, highly recommend them watch, watching them play Holmes and Watson together. Uh, it's really fun. What year did that uh, come just out? Just for those two. 76. 
Oh, so that was well before they did it in A View to a Kill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, uh, he. I got a quote here from Roger. He said, because this was 76, so he'd done, what, two Bond movies then? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I, what I liked most about playing Holmes was there was more dialogue in this one movie than I had in all 120 Saint episodes and the, and the Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. But it's good fun. Uh, and the last one um, is one I've not seen and I've only become aware of recently and I really need to track it down. It's one of his last ones in 1990. It's called Bullseye. Um, it's a British comedy film with Roger Moore and Michael Caine, directed by Michael Winner. Uh, it bombed at the box office, but basically Moore and Caine play dual roles of con men and inept nuclear physicists. Uh so uh, where the uh, the con men try to use their resemblance to the scientists that con their way into stealing formulas and blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, apparently it's sort of got a, developed a small cult following, so I need to look it out. It's called Bullseye. Oh. Uh, like I say, M- Michael Caine and Roger Moore, uh, I just want to see it just to see those two together on the screen. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I, uh, I had never heard of that one, I don't think. No, I only came across it uh, probably... Two months ago, I think I saw it mentioned somewhere, and I was like, "Oh, I got to look that one up." So interesting. Okay, well, I'll check that out. All right. Well, um, I think that brings us to the end. Any final thoughts? I I feel like I've uh, learned a few things, and I'm gonna go check out a few things, including the Saint. Just never really had any uh, way to see it or, or motivation till now, but I'm I'm intrigued, and um, and I think you all will you all know now to avoid Escape to Athena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to see if I can find a copy of uh, North Sea Hijack and yep. uh, the uh, the Bullseye one and find those. I've, I've actually enjoyed revisiting a bunch of these Roger movies over the last few weeks since we mm-hmm. said we were going to do this. So uh, yeah, um, it, it was good, good good to sort of dig in dig into his back catalogue and, and see what was there. And it, it was more varied than I thought. And I must admit, I'm just getting the chance to rewatch The Man Who Haunted Himself because it was always stuck in my mind as Roger's best movie and just getting it and rewatching it on DVD uh, over the last week or so, just uh, re- reconfirmed that. And it's now a, a, a nice addition to my DVD, DVD collection because I don't have one of those strange, funny server things that you do. I'm old school. Um, <laughs> so. I'm going to have to look that one up now too. Maybe we'll have to do a swap or All something. Right. So, yeah. so uh, who are we doing next? Um, well, what we said we were going to do is maybe do a, We've got to do George and Tim and Piers and then Daniel. So I was thinking maybe we do a combined Lazenby, um, Timothy Dalton one. And if you like, um, I'll take the Lazenby non-bomb movies if you want to take the Dalton ones. Okay. That sounds good to me. Sounds good. Good, good. All right. Let's see if I can find three Lazenby movies. to yeah. <laughs> I know. I was just going to ask you, how are we going to... I didn't. I don't know how many he did, really, honestly. No, he. there's a few out there. Okay. There's, there's a few interesting ones. So. Good deal. Good deal. All right. All right. Sounds good. All right. That's it for us for today. And uh, we will, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, the White Rocket Podcast, we'll be back along uh, in a bit to uh, check in with you again. Otherwise, we'll see you guys down the road. Thanks so much, Alan. Yes, man. Thanks. We work tirelessly day and night to provide folks with good quality content. And we couldn't do that if you guys didn't help us pay the bills and keep the show on the air. For as little as a dollar a month, you can join the White Rocket Entertainment family. 
and help us keep producing these these shows that you will enjoy and that, and that uh, Jared and the others produce. So just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, or you can just go to patreon.com and search for White Rocket and join up. And it's for as little as a dollar a month you get to be part of the show. Here are the fine folks who are currently keeping our programs on the air that we owe everything to. They include Chris and Clinton Stewart, Carl Von Drunker, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, Chris Usher, Gary Grant, Logan Chilton, Phil Amthor, Richard Stevens, Steve Trawick, Susan Trawick, Tom Anderson, Willie Carden, Ann Kanzian, A.U. Falling Up, Ben Bloodworth, Clay Henson, Dan Thompson, Daniel Odom, David Evers, David Hegler, Emmanuel Seaman, George Gaston, Jacob and Robin Fleming, James Greenwell, Joel Beckham, John Otsuki, Catherine England, Kevin Smith, Mickey B, Phil Davis, Preston Settle, Reynolds Wolf, Rich Reimer, Steve Harlan, Timothy, WDE Richie, Wes Atkinson, William Morgan, Wilson Beard, Winston Body, Alex Wynn, Blake Heron, Boris the Tiger, Cato the Barner, Chris the Hilton, Chris Thrash, Colby Butler, Danny Flack, as well as Darius Benton, David Simpson, Di Bama, not a moment too soon, Earl Ricks, Eric Mahan, Hugh Anderson, Josh Teal, Kevin Kenoy, Kevin Mahan, Lane Middleton, Melissa Blackstone, Mike Finley, Algo Rhythm, Papa Todd, Patrick Williams, Randall Walker, Rob Morgan, Ross Russell Milling, Shannon Butson, Sarah Hines, Sasquatch, Shane Bailey, Snowdog, Stephen Houston, Tim Pittman, Tony Perry, Auburn Elvis, Ben Amos, Brandon Sisson, Brandon Smith, Chris Como, Darren Pyle, David Smiley, Donnie Reynolds, James Taylor, Jason the Weasel Skull, Albrecht, John Stubbs, John Zavachin, Joey Miller, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Lawrence Kane, Mark Squire, Matthew Flowers, Mick Vigicana, Nicholas Craig, Paul Bankson, Robert Drain, Robert O. Sammons, and finally Russell Souther, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Spanky, Stephen Thompson, Trevor Johnson, Kenneth Brent Rains, Brant Rumble, Chris, plus our one-time and anonymous donors. We thank you all. Headquarters, we are still in pursuit of the Black Lamborghini. Car 42, you've been in pursuit for two hours. Another five minutes and you'll be in Arizona. Yeah, and we're going to stay in pursuit until we catch him. It didn't take us that long to catch Dillinger. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.